especially a special place for me to preach is the Masters uh, University and to be introduced by uh, Michael Guerra. His dad and I were very, uh, <coughs> very good friends. And Michael and I go back a long, long ways. I married his mom and dad. So you know how old that makes me and how young it makes him. Last time, uh, last time we um, were here in this auditorium for a Christmas, Christmas concert and Michael's dad was sitting right, right, right around here someplace as we observed the concert. And then later on, and a few weeks after that, God called him to, be, to go home with uh, the Lord. And so we are just thankful to God for the Master's University and, and the job that you've done on, on our friend Michael Guerra. He uh, has truly been transformed by the Word of God, and I am sure glad that he is at this institution. This is one of my favorite places to preach because you come with a heart that expects to hear a word from God. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles today to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. We're looking this morning at verses 6 through 10. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And it goes like this, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of, of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life that is to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. We're going to focus our thought on the exhortation given to us in verse 7. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. One of my heroes is a young man, was a young man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and became one of the great theologians of our country. And to this day, he still speaks, even though he has long been dead. But he, has a, he had a practice as a young man of, of taking, taking thought of his life and keeping journals. In his journals, he many times made resolutions. I think by now you probably have heard of some of these resolutions. Let me read some of these because they have to do with our theme this morning. I'm reading a re resolution 17. Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I, when I come to die. Resolution 37. To inquire every night as I am going to bed, wherein I have, been, I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself. Also, at the end of every week, month, and year. Resolution 40. To inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Resolution 41, to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly in any respect 
have done better. Resolution 43. Never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's, agreeably to what is to be found on Saturday, January 12th, June, and, and also January 12th, 1723. And this is, these are the types of things and types of thoughts that Jonathan Edwards wrote in his, in his diary and his resolutions that he made. When you and I examine the landscape, the evangelical landscape, we rarely find these kinds of individuals. A recent movie made the, uh, made the uh, public scene called Hacksaw Ridge about Desmond Dawes, a Seventh-day Adventist, who endeavored to live by the commandments, by the word of God, and he enlisted, made a covenant that he would never hold a gun, never kill a person, and yet he enlisted in the army. And um, without firing a shot, was able to earn a medal, a special medal in regards to saving over 70 individuals, 70 lives. And he made, he became famous because he was a, a cut above the average person. He lived in a life that is distinct and unique before God. And, and you know, friends, today we, we stop to think about this whole idea of how do we live our lives? And there is a, there's a need for us to take, take to heart the words the Apostle Paul has given us this morning. The whole idea of godliness. There is indeed in America and the world today a true lack of the reverence for God. The expression that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes, is as real today as ever before. There is also the lack of power even in formal religion. The Apostle Paul would write, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power thereof. There's a lack of reverence even among our own churches in contemporary worship. The average, you visit the average church in America, the average evangelical church, and the, uh, the worship services are, in any, are far from being reverent and, and honoring before God. There's a lack of distinct order in society. When it comes to marriage and family, institutions, the workplace, etc., an entirely lack of reverence for what we call order. The rise of divorce, the LGBTQ, rebellion, schools, etc. There's a lack of personal respect just for our own space, our own life. There seems to be a mood away from that of irreverence, lack of respect for our own personal space, evident by our emphases on not having to care for the way we dress, the way we talk. Sloppy dress, trashy talk, etc. There's a lack of emphasis on the well-ordered life. We emphasize liberty, emphasize freedom of expression. The internal life, the outside doesn't matter. What matters is the inside, the individual. In essence, the exact opposite of what Paul is stressing here. Paul is stressing something that we rarely ever hear preached from our pulpits. And I want to bring it to your attention this morning. The whole idea of being called to godliness. Paul would say, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The King James translates this, exercise yourself unto godliness. ESV, train yourself for godliness. My text, train, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
I want to bring this to the table this morning for our, our consideration and that we would think about this exhortation, the whole idea of godliness. I want to do five things with you this morning. I want to, first of all, define, define the whole word godliness. What is, what is he talking about when he mentions the word godliness? What is he after? Is, that, is it holiness or what is it? And then, secondly, talk about the source, the source of godliness. Where does it come from? When we think of godliness and the fact that we ought to discipline ourselves for this purpose, where does it come from? And thirdly, illustrate this. What does it look like? What does godliness really look like from, from God's perspective? And then, and then fourthly, examine the benefits, the motivation, why it is important for us. And then fifthly, how is it that we can then take this aspect of our lives and perfect it? What, what can I do? When he says discipline, what does that look like? What does it mean for me to discipline myself under godliness? Let's examine those five features this morning and take them with us for our meditation. Number one, what does it mean? It's an interesting word, godliness. It's, the Greek word is eusebeia, or eusebeo, it's a it's a word that goes back to the, to the Greeks, and we, uh, we prayed for Greece, and they have been the cradle of civilization for a long time, and they, uh, they mastered in the languages, and they took this word, and, and they used it, they coined it, they used it, and for them it was a very special word. When we think about godliness, this word, eusebia, has to do with the reverence for God. It's a combination of two words, you, which is the word good or well, well, well-mannered or well-done. And sebeo, which means to worship. It's the idea of, of good worship or good reverence. And it was always used in relation to the gods, how you behave before the gods. You behave, you, you behave before the gods in, in, in this way, in, in, in being, being godly or having godliness in your life or having this virtue in your life. And it was always an expression that was visible, Eusebe, or godliness, in the text has the emphasis of something being visible, a religion that expresses itself in a visible way. Kittle, who probably is the authority on definitions, says this review, this review shows clearly that godliness expresses respect for the orders of domestic, national, and international life. It's the whole idea of living a well-ordered life. The whole idea of the fact that it's a peculiar, peculiar way of living. Interesting that this word is found primarily in the epistles, of, uh, in the pastoral epistles by the Apostle Paul. Of the uh, 16 times that it is used in the New Testament, 12 of these are found in Paul, and then four are found in 2 Peter. So it's a very unique term, very unique term, and it stresses the whole idea of, of a manner of life. How, how we appear before people in a reverence of God. That's the aspect of it. How we appear before in our public manner, in our public demeanor. It's living a well-ordered life before God, but in a, in a fashion where it can be easily identified by those around us. And so the idea of piety came alongside to describe what this word means. Godliness and piety come together. That's why, for example, it's used in Acts, Acts 10 for Cornelius, that uh, centurion who was called a devout, 
That's the word devout man. That, that is, he was so engaged in doing deeds of kindness and mercy for the people of God that everybody knew it. There goes Cornelius. He's a devout man. He is a man that personifies Eusebia. He is a man that in his life, you can see everywhere that he is by all means a godly man. And so it is a word that comes to, to express a, a, a morally good life. It is, it, is, it is not equal to holiness. It is an aspect of holiness. It is one of the virtues. Go to chapter 6 with me, Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, where Paul says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. And then he gives a list of virtues. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Notice right in the middle, godliness. It is not synonymous with holiness. Holiness is the all-encompassing word that includes all these virtues. Godliness is one of these. It is a particular aspect of holiness. And that's why it's important for us to stop today and think about that. It is a particular aspect of holiness. It is one of the virtues. And when you think about the origin of holiness or origin of godliness... Let me take you to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, where the apostle describes for us, among other things, the reason for his coming, verse 14, for his writing, should I say, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession... Great is the mystery of what? Godliness. Now you need to help me. Where, uh, where that guy comes from, when I ask, you what? You answer. You answer. When I ask a question that's not rhetorical, it's I want an answer. All right? So humor me and talk to me back, all right? I know you're, you're used to John MacArthur. Like he is like way up there, sophisticated. And then I show, up, I show up with tamales and frijoles, and then, you know, it's a different story. <clears throat> All right, so when I, when I ask a question, you what? You answer me. You want to sleep during the sermon? Speak out loud anyway, all right? Talk in your sleep. Great is a mystery of what? Now, what is, and, and to read on then, by common confession, he who was revealed in the flesh vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed under the world, taken up in glory. The origin of godliness is the incarnation of God. It's the incarnation of God. When God became flesh, the result of that was the bestowal of godliness to his people, to the church. The church, the church is born and the church lives because of Christ. And the conduct of the church is, is, is predicated on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on who he is. Godliness is rooted in Christ. It is rooted in the gospel. Follow me to Titus chapter 2, please, the book of Titus chapter 2, on the origin of, of godliness in Titus chapter 2, and come down to verse 11, Titus 2, 11. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live how? Talk to me. Sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Again, notice, it is the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now notice the word instructing us, instructing us. The grace of God instructs. The grace of God disciples. The grace of God instills in us the truth of God. And then instructs us then in this whole arena of how we ought to live in this present age. Here's how Christians live. We are distinct from the world. We're in the world but not of it. We are different. The, the, the gospel of Christ, the grace of God, makes a difference in the way we live. And it is a visible difference. And so he says, this is, it's educational in nature. The grace of God teaches us a denial of the former way of life. Therefore, he says, denying, denying, he says, ungodliness and worldly desires. There's some things that we don't do that we turn away from. And then he says, the grace of God then instructs us and teaches us to live. Notice these three words, sensibly, righteously, and godly. In the present age. Now, Paul does something here in the text that, that is really interesting. Because when you go to the, to the Greeks, and, and they're, they, had a, they had a way of instructing, and they, they tried to perfect humanity as best they can. And they had these three virtues that every, 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 every sensible, intelligent Greek should try to achieve. It had to do with, first of all, the mastery of self. The mastery of self. And that's the first word that he uses here. To live sensibly. The whole idea, to look at your life and make sure that you've taken control of numero uno, of number one, and that you're practicing in yourself a high degree of self-control. Secondly, he says that you're to live righteously. That is your, in, in your relationship with each other. That you treat each other well, that you do good to one another, that you consider the welfare of other people. The Greeks taught that. And Paul says, this is what the grace of God also does. It teaches us self-control, but also teaches us how to deal with each other, how we should love each other from the heart and behave towards one another. And then he had the third word, and godly. And, and, and the Greeks would say, yes, that's your, that's your behavior before God. You're always under the watchful care, the watchful eye of God. Therefore, live godly. And Paul would say, and so it is that Christ taught us to live godly. We're always under the watchful care of God. We are to live in such a way with our genuine piety before the Lord. This is the whole of man. Paul is saying, this is the whole of man. This is us. This is what we are. We're to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness is rooted in the gospel. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, he does something to us, and he transforms us, and he makes us above all, among other things, 
He makes us godly. Let me take you to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for just a moment. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. There's a third source of, of, uh, of godliness, and it's given to us here in, verse, in chapter 6 and verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree to, with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to what? Godliness. The doctrine conforming to godliness. Now, in the context, in the context, he's talking about, about healthy doctrine and false doctrine. He's talking about doctrine that is sound doctrine and doctrine that is not sound doctrine. Worldly fables, etc. He said sound, sound doctrine is going to produce godliness. Now you know, you know when a man or woman is godly because you know that they've been imbibing and partaking of sound doctrine because sound doctrine always produces godliness. Unsound doctrine, heresy, and that which is not sound will not produce sound doctrine. It produces the opposite, strife, envy, envy the stuff that, that is the opposite of, of godliness. And therefore, it is a, it is a, it's go back and forth. If you, if you imbibe in sound doctrine, the result will be godliness. If we see godliness in your life, it is because you've been imbibing or partaking of sound doctrine. You are what you eat. Have you noticed that? You are what you eat. You eat too many tamales, you start looking like one. You ever notice that? <laughs> With little legs sticking out, and that's what it is. So the issue is, friend, you eat too many carrots, and you start looking orange. You ever notice that? You know? Um, and, and so the issue is, you are what you eat. And God is saying the source of godliness is going to be sound doctrine. Go to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Book of Titus chapter 1. In Titus 1, when he begins the book, he says, Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to what? There it is. It's the truth according to godliness. That is truth reproduces godliness. Now, there's no question that you're in one of the greatest greatest if not the greatest university in America. And there is no question about the truth that's being taught here, as sound as sound could be. And so godliness is obviously going to ooze out in the, in the classrooms as you partake of God's word. So the source of godliness is the incarnation of God. It is, it is the grace of God. It is the word of God. Now let's go to number three. What does it look like? What does it look like? Obviously, godliness is something you can see. That's what he's talking about. It is something that is visible. When Jonathan Edwards sat down to write his resolutions, and he wrote them, he wrote them for himself, but he wrote them so that we could read them. And we have, we've been reading them for the last 200 years. But he also lived in such a way that he knew that his life was a visible life and people watched him. And so it's interesting that when Paul exclusively uses this word in the pastorals, he puts it in the context of, of a life that is a love of God, a moral life that could be seen that has a, an effect in our everyday life. Let's go to chapter 2 to begin. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
First Timothy chapter 2, let's just begin by identifying some of these things. First of all, then, I, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petition and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for Trump and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all, finish it, godliness and what? And dignity, there it is. Interesting. The whole purpose of intercessory prayer, the whole purpose of intercessory prayer is that we can lead a, a quiet life, a tranquil life. Every, as, as God would say, every man underneath his, his vine and his fig tree. That was the, that was the goal, that was the goal of, the, of the godly Jew. Peaceful life. Just have a, have a family properly taken care of, you know, minding your own business, having enough food to eat, to drink, and, and live for God in a quiet fashion so that we could display godliness and dignity all around us. Now, the, he says the, the root of that is intercession. Intercession. Always pray for your leaders. Pray for your president, pray for your senate, pray for your governors, pray for your mayor, pray for anyone who has influence over your life. Because God desires this, and the end result is going to be a tranquil and quiet life with all godliness and dignity. Intercession. Intercession. Godliness is marked by intercession. You know, we have, a, we have the world up in a turmoil. We have a brand new president who's been in office less than a month and everyone's having a fit, having a cow. Now, I can understand pagans having a cow, but Christians, when you have a cow, you got a problem. We are told to pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the man. Pray for those. You may not vote it in that direction, but you know, friend, he's our man now. When Paul wrote this, he was asking you to pray for Roman emperors. And compared to them, you know, Do Mr. Trump is Donald Duck. You know what I'm saying? There's like... So the mark of godliness, the God mark of godliness is intercession for your leaders. To pray for them, to find you on your knees praying for your leaders. That is a mark of godliness. And Paul would say that. Now you drop it down to verse 8. Verse 8, he says... Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy, up holy hands without wrath and dissension. He's lo he now he turns to the whole idea of the worship, the assembly of worship. Likewise, I want women, women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to what? To what? Ladies to what? Ladies to what? Godliness. Interesting. He says, you know, you claim to be godly? Well, let's see the way you dress. You claim to be godly? Then let's see the way you dress. See, our culture is like this. It doesn't matter how you dress because God only looks on the inside. Is that true? Before this, you would have said, yeah. 
But now you know that I said something else. <laughs> you see, it does matter on the outside. It does matter. Since 1969, for just a, just a moment, ladies, since 1960, we have been in a sexual revolution that, is an, that has been unparalleled in the history of, of the world. It's incredible. We have, thrown, we have thrown sexual morals out the window. We are into free love and no matter what you do. And then we come to this text, we don't even stop and give it a second thought. But in, it matters, he says. If you're, if you're professing godly, you're disciplining yourself for godliness, then you're going to think twice about how you dress, whether in worship or outside. It matters little. He says, understand that, that in, regard, in regards to your lifestyle, he says, you need to consider, consider the whole idea of, of modesty and, and, and discreetly. The word modestly is the idea of, of, of a proper, proper giving, giving no offense to anybody. You don't want to dress in such a way that it becomes offensive to people. And the other word, discreetly, is the whole idea of thinking about it. When you put on your wardrobe, think about it. Is this, does this display my devotion to God? Is this, uh, does this reflect a moral, pure woman that makes a profession to godliness? You know, I've been to churches, people, where the worship team here looks like a, you know, looks like it's something out of Vegas, a floor show. And, they're, and it's a contradiction because they're dressed like a floor show, and yet they're singing hymns that we sang this morning. And you wonder, well, haven't, haven't they read the text? Hasn't the grace of God done anything? I know that at the Master's University, we have this, this unspoken code. You know, that you live a certain way, you dress a certain way. And there's always some here that are here that do it because they have to do it, but not because you want to do it. You open to your face your Facebook page, and you're an entirely different woman. There you're dressed like something that just stepped out of some street in Hollywood. Or you look at your, your wedding photos, and you're wearing your, your nightgown to the wedding. Instead of a wedding gown, you put a nightgown on. Everything's showing. What's that about? And you make it a profession when it comes to godliness? You're probably saying, Montoya, you're... You're crossing the line, though. You're stepping on some toes. I don't care. You invited me. I didn't invite myself to come here. <laughs> you asked me to come, so I'm here. You know, I'm here. Well, what I'm saying is, you know, ladies, look in the mirror. Let's look in the mirror. I've had husbands have had to tell their wives, honey, don't go out like that. You're embarrassing me. And she said, I don't care. I'll dress the way I want to dress. Friend, that's, that attitude is not an attitude of godliness. And you see, when it comes to godliness, you're going to choose whether to follow the train of an Edwards or follow the train of some other, some other person. All I'm saying is this is what God says is what happens or a way a person that professes godliness the way they're going to be. <laughs> it's incredible. You know, doctor, we have... We have folks come to church dressed like they, 
they just came out of a Vietnam War or Afghanistan. Their, pa their pants are like shattered <laughs> and, and clothes to shreds. You come into church like that? What happened to you? And like they're like, you know, like they're in style, you know. <laughs> I, got, I got 10 pair of pants like that at home. They're, they're Levi's that I've worn and they're like shreds. I went shopping the other day a few years ago and people paying 150 bucks for torn Levi's. <laughs> for I am rich. <laughs> now, now, you got torn pants today. I, I I'm, I'm not talking to, you know, never mind. I mean, forget it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, but that's a choice we're making. We're gonna, you're going to choice either to embarrass people? Aleman, Aleman, Master Seminary, magazine, preaching magazine, had a pastor from back east someplace, cover page. There he was, as a preacher, as a model for us, you know, dressed in sloppy clothes, torn jeans. What's that about? You're a preacher, and that's what you're communicating? See, there's a sense where, where is God in all this matter? Where is sensibility in all this matter? Where is this whole sense of, we are God's people, and it should matter. We should think about even the outward appearance because it matters to God. It mattered to Paul. It mattered to the Christian church. In case I am delayed, Timothy, this is the way we conduct ourselves in the church of the living God, the household of faith, the pillar and support of the truth. Go to chapter 5. Another example, chapter 5. Verse 1, do not sharply rebuke an elder, but rather appeal to them. When is this chapel over, by the way? I'm almost done, isn't it? Is it at 1020, so that's when it's over? What? 1025. You know where I come from? We go by Mexican time. There is no closing time. <laughs> Isn't that right, Gara? That's why he's always late. You notice Mike's always late. He's even post-trib, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> not really, not really. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Interesting. Do not rebuke, sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, the younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, honor widows who are widows indeed, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice what? Piety. That's the word there, piety. That's the word godliness in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. The way we treat our parents is a display of godliness. The way we treat our parents if I was to go to my alma mater, as my brother did, came to this one, and you were to ask me, what is it that I should have learned in my alma mater? I would have wanted them to add, emphasize this, honor your mom and dad. Honor your mother and father. It is a display of godliness. Just because you leave home doesn't, doesn't excuse you from your obligation to your parents. Just because you're out of the house doesn't mean you can treat them like trash. No, honor them, honor them, care for them, 
It is a display of godliness. And yet we have a culture today that you put your mom or dad in the rest home, hospice, and you know, they're done. Wait till they die so you can take their inheritance. What is that about? You're here at the school, never call your mom, never call your dad, never bother with him. Why? Because you see, it it isn't important to you. And God said it's a display of godliness. Display of godliness. How you treat your elders, how you treat those that are older than you, really matters. That is in the context of godliness. You see, all of this matters. Why would the brother walk down the street and nobody greet him? Because we don't, it doesn't matter to us. I can walk the halls of a seminary, walking back men of God, and they'll never acknowledge me. Unless they acknowledge first, they walk right by. And I'm old enough to be their fathers. That's our culture. We think we can be evangelicals and godly and disallow our older people, friend. That is not so. If you're going to be a godly man, a godly woman, those that are older than you deserve your respect and deserve your reverence. That's what the text says. Now, you want to argue with the text? Argue with the text. That's what the text says. Now, let me just take you back to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. How is it that, why why should we go this route? Well, look at verse 8. Chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, because it holds a promise for life, the present life, and also for the life that is to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Paul says, you know, gang, this is the way to go. Because you see, the other kind of discipline, which is like bodily discipline, this is a gymnasium, and the word for discipline is gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium. We come here to work out. We come here to, you know, get our bodies in tone. And Paul says, that's okay, but in comparison to godliness, it is like a little, little prophet. Where if you go this route, oh man, you discipline yourself for, the, for godliness, and your gain will be exceedingly great. You know why? Because it holds a promise for the present life, for the present life, for the way you live now, and the benefits now are all yours. Godliness impacts the way people treat you. Godliness impacts the way you live. Godliness brings a sense of well-being, contentment, peace, tranquility, and honor in the lives of those around you for the present life. And then in the future, it's internal life. How can you go wrong? You have a good now, and you have it for all eternity. It is a trustworthy statement. Paul says, we as a church, we take this and we've made it a model. When Paul uses this expression, a trustworthy statement, it became a proverb, a saying adopted by the Christian church. This is the way we're going to live. We're going to live this way. And then he says, here's how you do it. You discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You're disciplined. Is there a bodybuilder in our midst? I see some that are not, but I, are there any? There are... <laughs> Anybody a bodybuilder here? Usually, usually you can see their body. This one right here with that cap on, right there. Would you stand? Oh, you're not a body. You look like a bodybuilder. See, a, bo- a bodybuilder. You know, when you're a body, when you're a body, when you're a bodybuilder, I I tried to be a bodybuilder, but it just didn't work out for me. You know, it's just recently that I've gotten this good. I mean, I'm not. 
see, but bodybuilders, they don't just do push-ups. They don't just, they focus a bicep. And so they do the curls. They get the bicep, and they work on the bicep. Then they work on the triceps. Yeah. And they work on the laterals. And they work, see, they're focusing on individual muscles of the body. And God is saying, when you pursue godliness or holiness, you start pursuing godliness in particular. You take the things we spoke of this morning, and you begin to work on them. And this is what you begin to do. You focus, and you make it a habit of your life. If you want to be godly, it's going to take discipline. I mean, for you to identify some of these things, people of God, you have a choice. You can go with the flow or identify that you want to be a godly man or a godly woman. The choice is yours. My desire this morning is to encourage you to look at this facet of holiness and then take your life. And make it so that you live a well-ordered life before God and before man. That you answer to him and live for his honor and live for his glory. And the end result is going to be a profitable life now and at the end for him. Lord, thank you so much for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace. You've saved us. You've bestowed upon us the robe of righteousness that is ours in Christ. And then you've exhorted us that we live a life before you and before men in such a way that they would look at us and glorify you who are in heaven. And may every, every student at the Master's University, my prayer, God, is that every single student in the Master's University be known not just that they're evangelicals and not just that they come to a great Bible teaching school and not that that they're just Christians, but they be known for their godliness, for their godliness, as you began to show us in the text. That's my prayer. It is our prayer together that you make us godly for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.